Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy Marty Ben here, sipping on some delicious coffee. Here to introduce this week's episode of Tales from the Crypt with Hector Rosecrans, uh, a veteran of the Naval Academy, a Bitcoiner, and currently working at Casa to help people secure their Bitcoin. We had an incredible conversation about how Hector came to find Bitcoin, his experience in the Navy, uh, why he thinks Bitcoin is important, how. Uh, the revolution that's being played out via Bitcoin may be able to spread democracy more than the military might, how it is imperative that people take responsibility when securing their Bitcoin, and, and how Bitcoin compares to the Constitution, which has been a big theme on this podcast uh, the last couple weeks, couple months, um, but we, actually, since the Trace Mayor podcast, we've really been diving into that, and uh, Hector and I dove a little further. He's got a lot of lot of strong thoughts especially uh bitcoin being a web being be, bitcoin being akin to a weapon excuse me um giving individuals back power and uh an imperative as we head into the digital age and this is actually before we get into the ad read something i've been seeing on twitter a lot of uh a lot of people debating about what is bitcoin actually for is it for censorship resistant transactions is it sound money is it a savings account it's all things a lot of people like to say it's a swiss bank account in your pocket but it's like a swiss army knife of monetary tools you can use it to uh, make the transactions they don't want you to make it's going to help preserve your uh, purchasing power over time and your percentage of the whole pie is never going to be depreciated there's only ever going to be 21 million bitcoin so you can have solace in the fact that uh find solace in the fact that and you have a good savings tool as well as a good censorship resistant money and you can even store data in it sometimes it's uh not highly recommended depending on what the data is it's a very niche use cases but again it's a swiss army knife it's a swiss bank account in your pocket but it's also uh cash in your pocket digital cash that you can send anywhere so don't let haters try to pigeonhole bitcoin into one use case over the other it is all things in one to me be serving uh, more people in a certain use case right now at this certain period of time. Um, but hopefully it'll, it'll serve all use cases, not even equally. It'll just serve use cases when they need to be served, and hopefully it is serving people around the world. Um, that was just a Wednesday morning tangent from your boy. I saw some shit on Twitter. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by Cash App. As you know, Cash App is the simplest way to send and save money. Now's the simplest way to try to grow your money, introducing Cash App Investing. Unlike investing tools that only let you buy entire shares of stocks, Cash App lets you instantly invest as little or as much as you want. We're stacking slivers of shares now, freaks. On top of stacking sats, the Cash App still allows you to stack sats, send sats, receive sats, all that good stuff. Now we can stack slivers of shares. This way, when your favorite company's stock is just a little too expensive, you can still own a piece with as little as $1. Invest $1 in a stock. You know, it might be $120, you can invest a dollar in it. Because Cash App is directly connected to your bank account, there are no four to five day waiting periods for inbound transfers, so you can start investing today. Broker services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary of, Ca- uh, of Square and member SIPC. And as always, you freaks already know, when you use the code STACKINGSATS, that's one word, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S, you're now going to get $10 when you sign up for the Cash App, and then Cash App's going to send $10 to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse, a charity very near and dear to our hearts, Owls Lacrosse. Oh, oh. Download the Cash App today. Use the code stacking sats. 
and enjoy it, freaks. You only got one life. We're only here on this rock flying through space for one life. Get the most out of it, you know? Work on things that are worthwhile. Enjoy the episode. Take care. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Ben here on a Tuesday night in the relegation studio, sitting down with a veteran, a Bitcoiner, somebody doing work with Casa as well. I want to introduce you, freaks, to Hector Rosecrans. Hector, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming on, man. Totally. How uh, how the hell are things going? Things are good. Things are really good, man. Yeah. Get, I get I get to spend all day talking to Bitcoiners at Casa, which is like the best job in the world. So I'm loving it. Uh. How are the Bitcoiners you're talking to? Uh, they're great. They're, uh, you know, we get all types. We get like, you know, a lot of your listeners actually, and I, I love the diversity. We get like, you know, hardcore tech people out of the Bay Area. We get like libertarians from the Midwest, from all over, all over the world, a total mix of just this, this, that, and the other. And, uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of fun talking to people, helping them, uh, helping them get secure. Yeah, man. It's secure. It's big on your mind. Before we <laughs> hop into your story, I just want to. Refresh how uh, you hopped onto my periphery. Uh, it was earlier this year. Issue. What issue was it? I had it up here. Um, 461, which was written in April this year. Bitcoin is a weapon. You wrote a really great piece uh, describing. Uh, it was really descriptive. Really good writing. Uh, just setting the scene uh, for for you being uh, on the water. Uh while serving in um, in the navy in the navy yeah and comparing bitcoin to an ak47 and comparing the asymmetric uh leverage that the ak47 provided to warfare uh bitcoin is sort of uh providing that to the digital age and, and digital warfare if you yep, will exactly um so let's jump into that a little later like how did you get into all this yeah, well, I, I want to just like, like go through my whole back background, like back through the military as well, because it really feeds into uh, it. Really, kind of feeds into my views on Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, grew up in America, incredibly privileged, just enjoy the amount of freedom that that we have here. Um, and I kind of took it for granted um, all the way up until uh, you know, bright sunny September morning in two thousand one. I was a junior in high school, and planes at the towers is a uh, a monumental shift, I think, for everybody in the world, but. For me in particular, I just, you know, it suddenly kind of crystallized the fact that there are people out there who do not believe in the kinds of freedoms that we hold dear in this country. Um, and they're willing to do tremendous amounts of violence to, uh, to kind of fight against that. Um, at that point in my life, it made a lot of sense for me and I felt an obligation to join the military. Uh, initial plan was to enlist in the Marine Corps. Um, my parents were not super thrilled about that. So I think they told me like, just go apply to a service academy, see what happens. Um, I was fortunate to get an appointment to, uh, to, to Annapolis. And, you know, that was kind of my, my initial entry into the, uh, into the military was through the U S Naval Academy. Um, and it turned out to be like a perfect place for me to go to college. Uh, not your typical college lifestyle in the slightest, which probably a good thing for me. I think that that like added structure was uh, was definitely a was definitely helpful. Um, but they kind of teach you two things at the Naval Academy. They teach you technology. Um, it's an engineering school, which is critical because you need your officers to understand at a core level how systems work. Um, 
you know, you don't have time to call Raytheon tech support when you lose a generator in a, uh, you know, in a battle exchanging missiles with the Chinese and you're, you know, take a hit to the front, shuts down half of your radar array. How do you get it back up online? Don't really have a lot of time to talk to, talk to tech support. So a critical like engineering understanding is, uh, is pretty fundamental there. But the other piece of it is they teach you ethics because they recognize that, you know, in order to you know, be in the military, in order to, you know, have command of these weapons of mass destruction, you really need to make sure that the people that are wielding those know how to do it the right way and why they're doing it in the first place. So got into the ethics of warfare, got into the ethics of, you know, operating a military within a, you know, within a constitutional Republic and ultimately like got into the ethics underpinning the constitution itself, like where these freedoms come from, why negative rights, like freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, why these things all matter. Um, and it also was this incredible way to kind of bond with your classmates because you realize that from all walks of life, people have kind of come together in this place to learn the craft of warfare, but for the same reasons and to kind of get that same ethical education at the same time. Um, you graduate from that and you go out to the fleet and you know that, you know, the people standing around you are with you on the mission are with you on, you know, your view of like the right way, the right way to do things and what really matters in this world. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's kind of a truism in the military. Like you'll never be as close with the people that you, uh, you know, with anyone else in your life than the people that you serve with. And you know, I haven't quite found that to be, that to be the case, but uh, we'll get into that in a minute. But, you know, standing up there, like on the bridge of my destroyer center line, looking straight out the window, driving my ship, taking that left hand turn out of the uh, San Diego Harbor and then setting a course west for the Pacific, um, surrounded by people that you know believe the same things that you do and are there to you know, work towards the same objectives that you are. It's, just, it's such an, an incredibly powerful feeling. Um, it was great. Then I got out because I realized that uh, as much as I love the Navy, there were certain aspects of it were uh, you know, just not necessarily for me long-term career-wise. Um, but, uh, you know, trying to figure out what's next and, uh, it was tough because you struggle to find that you struggle to find like that level of commitment, that level of, you know, people that are as committed to, to ideas as you were in that role. And yeah, I tried politics. I went to grad school. I tried getting into tech and I just, everything kind of felt flat after leaving the military. Um, so eventually I kind of decided, fuck it, I'm going to make some money, work on Wall Street, whatever. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, got, was fortunate enough to get a, get a role at, J, at JP Morgan. And it was actually like there working in the, the belly of the beast that I came across. I came across the person who kind of the next person I met who like had that spark, that same spark of like passion for ideas and for, you know, transforming the world in a freedom loving way. Um, you know, and then I, from JP Morgan, I, I decided it was a, uh, I guess, you know, what happened there and you're probably gonna have to cut all my rambling bullshit here. Um, no, not at all. But, um, but yeah, so I, you know, blockchain technology was kind of hot at the time and I needed like an in, I needed to like figure out a way that I could like make myself more marketable in the bank. Cause I was just some idiot bro vet who had no background in finance had the engineering training from the Naval Academy. And I was like, okay, if I lean into the engineering side, if I learn how this stuff actually works, that's gonna make me valuable. And then I can have a career as like a managing director running the blockchain team, um, which is what I was aspiring to do. When I uh, found this, this you know, open source meetup um, group called BitDevs. And I was like, oh, well, I'll check this out, see what these guys are 
two of these guys, two of these guys are, are talking about, um, walked into that, to that room. And I, I realized that, you know, all these crazy nerds were actually doing the exact same thing that I was doing at the Naval Academy. Um, these are people that care about technology, care about how it works, but care about doing it in such a way that you're promoting freedom. And once I kind of like understood that that's what was at the core of driving the Bitcoin movement, um, it totally shifted my perspective. And like, I got that same feeling of like being surrounded by people that were working towards those same objectives of, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, like all these core freedoms that we have in America. And these people are building open source tools that do that exact, do those exact same things. And what's more, what's even better is like, we have that in America. Um, it doesn't really work out all that well when we try to export that using our military force around the world. But if this stuff is open source, if this stuff is open to anyone in the world who can, you know, decide to run a node, get a download Bitcoin wallet, you know, do whatever it takes to be a part of the, uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem, like you can opt in to the, those freedoms yourself, no matter where you live. No, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, do you think, uh, freedom enabled technologies like Bitcoin are more effective than spreading democracy via via the military these days. Oh, totally. Yeah, I think our, I think that trying to force, it, it's a weird thing to try to force freedom on somebody. You know, it's yeah. like it's kind of it's kind of so, a paradox. It doesn't really work. So that let's well. dive more into that. Like you were joined the military right after nine eleven. What was your military experience like? Like what, uh, um, what what did you see personally? What uh, do you, do you um, have any any thoughts on, on sort of like the, the way the Iraq war has gone uh, since you embarked on your, your journey to join the military and, and enlist? Totally. Well, let me start with just my, like, when I fell in love with the surface Navy, which is what I did. I was a surface warfare officer, which means you're kind of on the, on the pipeline to become the captain of a ship someday. And I fell in love with that job pulling into New York Harbor when I was 19 years old. Um, I was a midshipman. It was just after my first year at the Naval Academy when they treat you like total dog shit for the whole year and just haze you relentlessly. So already kind of feeling it, feeling good. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was just, uh, I happened to be on the watch. I was driving our little like 120 foot training vessel called a yard patrol craft, um, into the Harbor. And we were definitely supposed to like call up the senior officers and the, the chiefs and the uh, upperclassmen, um, when we were pulling into New York, but the guy who was in charge of doing that, the first class was asleep in his chair. So I was just driving. I was working with a couple other night, couple of 19 year olds. And we just like drove straight under the, uh, under the, the, the narrows and into the Harbor on a Saturday morning in the summer, like pleasure boats everywhere, Staten Island ferries zipping in and out statue of Liberty over there. You literally like came into New York Harbor, um, at the same way that like people coming into Ellis Island would see the city for the first time. And especially after nine 11, it was very fresh in everyone's minds at that, at that time. Um, you know, just having that experience of being like on my own, driving the ship, going in and seeing New York for the first time was incredible. And then obviously going out in the city at 19 years old, when you're wearing summer whites, people don't check your IDs all that, all that carefully. Won't get into too much of the, uh, the details from that night, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, definitely. Please uh, do. Please do. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not going to force you. But yeah, so that was like my intro to, you know, that was like my first time in the, in New York and, uh, was just made me fall in love with, uh, with going to see and just like the cool, you get to see the world, you get to do this incredible stuff. Um, my service, you know, I was on the ship the whole time. Uh, I did three deployments around the world, two out of the West coast, one out of the East coast, 
always met up in the Middle East doing a bunch of different uh, different work. We did some counter piracy operations. Um, I talked about that a bit about about that a bit in my piece. Um, that was actually like that's what got all the press. But it was the pirates were low key like cool dudes. They were bros. Um, they see you show up on the horizon and they th- you watch them like on the video screen, like throwing their weapons overboard and <laughs> claiming to be fishermen. I was like, dude, your fish hooks rotted. I picked this up. I see like a spare AK 47 bandolier down there. Um, clearly you're not fishermen, but they would swear up and down they're fishermen. So you can't really, can't really do anything about, about them. Um, you know, kind of catch, catch and release there. But you know, the bad guys that we dealt with were the, uh, were, you know, terrorists basically smuggling guns, people, um, and drugs, from the coast of Pakistan down to the Horn of Africa. You know, we would uh, basically, we were kind of goalie. So anyone who didn't get picked up in Afghanistan or you didn't get picked up by, you know, whoever was uh, the cops or the intelligence services in Pakistan and actually made it to the water, uh, we were the kind of uh, the, la- the last line of defense against against those guys. So a lot of boardings, a lot of kind of, uh, you know, checking, checking people out and making sure that, uh, you know, everyone has their documents in order. We were a little bit like the highway cops of the high seas. Um, a lot of fun, a great mission. I got to train an incredible team. And uh, that was the other thing is my, my commands really early on just gave me a lot of autonomy in terms of, all right, here's a mission. You can go ahead and run this yourself. You can, you know, you can train, train the team, make sure they get to all the right schools, train them up during deployment. Like, yeah, we're sailors. We're not SEALs or anything like that. Everyone has a day job working in, you know, IT systems or turning wrenches down, down in engineering or standing watch up on the bridge. So, you know, these weren't like, you know, trained, you know, trained infantry or anything like that, but, uh, getting that team to kind of come together and build this, uh, build up this, this capability that we were then able to, uh, able to use quite a bit on the planet was just a ton of fun. Yeah, no, I was, uh, I've said this many times in the past, I actually worked for a Naval captain for like eight, eight oh, nice. summers. And now he would tell me stories of taking, uh, the ships down the Mississippi and, and, and blowing up stranded ships and stuff like yeah. that. And it's, uh, it is, uh, it's a stressful job too, right? Like, because oh, you're, yeah, you're, definitely. uh, handling this heavy machinery. Like, wasn't there just an incident, uh, like six or seven months ago in the Strader Hamuz or whatever, or ran into like I ran ship or, or no. I'm trying to think. So the two incidents that I remember from a ways back were, um, you know, where there were two collisions over the summer of 2017. Um, And those were horrific Navy uh, collisions, Navy uh, destroyers, the kind of ship that I was on. This is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. These horrific accidents. um, These two, these ships collided and there were two of them in the same summer. Um, You know, this is one of the things that kind of turned me off to the surface fleet when I was, when I was there, as much as I love the people and I love the mission, I love the work. You know, they were just, there was never enough resources for enough people on these ships. We were chronically undermanned and it was, uh, it's a weird, it was, you know, I could see it coming a mile away that you're going to have some incidents like this. It comes as no surprise, you know, when you look at the deployment rotation schedules, the watch rotation schedules. I mean, I went months without like getting a full night's sleep without you know, and my, having my sleep constantly interrupted by watch rotations, all these cycles. And it's just, it really, wear, it really wears you down and, and burns you out. And I think that it's a weird thing because on the one hand, like it was an underinvestment in that part of the fleet that led to those, um, you know, that led to those collisions and those, and those tragedies. It's a weird, I know it's weird to like say that we don't spend enough money on the military, um, <laughs> but for what we ask the military to do, we don't spend enough money on it. 
And, you know, I don't think that the answer is to, oh, let's like, you know, jack up the defense, the defense budget and spend a ton more money on it. I think the answer is to prioritize what we actually want to do with our, you know, with the military. And then we can decide how to fund those things in the most appropriate way to the most, to the best level. But in a way that you're not just kind of like, you know, stealing, you know, stealing some money from over here, robbing Peter, Peter to pay, to pay Paul, because we have this new objective, this new mission that just came down from our political leaders with, for reasons that pass comprehension of anybody on the, on the ground. How much do contractors get in the way? Contractors? Not a ton. Like how much do they take up of our military budget? Oh, I'm, that's, it's really hard to say what, how much, because actually I'm sure there's statistics on that. I have no idea. Um, for me, like the biggest issue I think is that there's just like a lack of accountability on, and there's like, there's mission creep everywhere. So the biggest thing that I look at is like, you know, the deficit exploded under George W. w. Bush. It went, and I'd have to look at specific numbers, but both the debt and the deficit, you know, after, after Clinton basically balanced the budget at the end of his tenure, which doesn't mean the debt was gone. It just means that we weren't adding to the debt. Um, it just totally took off under George W. Bush. And a lot of that was spending on the military. And a lot of that was spending on these wars. And, you know, one of the things that got me excited about Bitcoin was this idea that, you know, I don't think that the American public would have been so easily led you know, down the rabbit hole to agree to an invasion of Iraq if it meant that we had to like levy an additional tax to pay for that. And that was one of the, uh, the kind of key court, the kind of key ideas that brought me, that brought me on, on the Bitcoin train was just like our inability to have any fiscal discipline whatsoever is what allows our military to, it's not even our military, but like our national security leadership to decide that, oh, this is a good idea. So let's just go do it and not worry too much about the consequences because there's no, there's no sense of like economy. There's no sense that like, oh, what happens if we run out of money or what happens if like, you know, no one wants to pay for this because someone's always going to pay for it. There's no sense of accountability too, right? At the end of the day. What was that? There's no sense of accountability at the exactly. end of the day Exactly. There's no accountability. If yeah. we don't have to, you know, if the American taxpayer doesn't have to pay a bill for the war, it's like, sure, that sounds like a good idea. Let's go let's go freedom and democracy in all over the Middle East during the Arab Spring, not taking into account what the second order, the third order, the fourth order, you know, questions are going to be there and issues that can pop up, you know, and I think that if we actually had, like, if we actually had to pay for this stuff and we had to pay for it up front, there would be a lot, people would think a lot harder about, like, do I really want to invest my taxpayer dollars? Do I want to, my taxes to be raised to fight this fight? And that's not to say the answer is always no. There's going to be times when there's going to be times when it's like, yeah, hey, look, it's Hitler, Nazi Germany, and everyone's on board with that. And if anything, it makes you explore more diplomatic options more earnestly before you go to war, right? Exactly. And like that's that's a big that's a really big piece of it is that diplomatic options like leave the door open for more stuff down the road, whereas war just kind of tends to beget more war and more war. I mean, Iraq, the Iran-Iraq war bled into Iraq one, Iraq two, now whatever's happening in Syria and, you know, somehow Iraq has morphed into Syria and nobody kind of noticed that we're still operating okay. under the same, uh, under the same laws that were for invading Afghanistan in 2001. So what do you think of that as a, as a warrior, somebody who's been to war, somebody who's had skin in the game, um, like, 
again, we were saying it may not be as effective as something like Bitcoin is and enabling the freedoms that uh, spreading democracy claims that it's trying to do. Um, do you think there's an awakening happening of people realizing that, hey, maybe this isn't working out. We should seek alternatives or. Yeah, I do. Um, the thing that I got really excited about was there's like uh, Obama put down the red line in Syria. I think that was in 20, it was 2014 or 2015, maybe 2016. Um, we put down the red line in Syria and he said, if you cross this red line, we're going to war. And guess what? The American public said, no, said, no, we, we don't want to go to war. Like we've already done this. We've been down, we've seen this show before. This is not what we want to do. And there was a very strong backlash against that. And I think that a big part of the reason for that was just the way in which social media had kind of changed the game since, uh, since 2003 when we did Iraq. And there was just a lot of voices out there in this kind of distributed fashion that could stand up and say, no, we don't want to do that. We're not going to listen to what the New York Times, what the Washington Post, what the Wall Street Journal are telling us. We're going to listen to what people that we respect on Twitter are saying because we can access that information. And there are these more channels and that ultimately was able to put some political pressure and was able to put some political pressure on the administration to say like, okay, no, we, we actually can't, we actually can't go that route. Yeah, more importantly, I think it, it gives a voice to the other too. So with Syria uh, and the line that you're speaking of, like I, I remember Syrians like getting on Twitter and joining the hashtag oh, conversations yeah. being like, please, like we're just normal people like you trying to get by and it can, that empathy creation. Totally. And th that ability to communicate with people, like that's part of why I love America because guess what? Twitter's an American company. Um, it is fundamentally founded in freedom of speech. And I know there's all kinds of drama in the tech politics world about the best way to approach that stuff. But if you kind of go in with that baseline of Twitter was able to probably stop an American war and was able to do that because it empowered not only ordinary Americans and gave them voice, but also gave voice to people in other countries who could then communicate with Americans, with the electorate. Um, that to me is like, that's, that's, that's like the best version of free speech and American capitalism coming together. And it feels like a, there's a, a, a stack developing, right? Like the internet and the apps built on top of it, like Twitter, the communication stack, like we can share our ideas and uh, 20, 30 years into the internet becoming popular, we have the, the value layer of the stack now with Bitcoin and um, it seems like it's it's additive to what's been created up to this point. Yeah, exactly. I just think it's another it's another tool in the toolkit of freedom. Um, I think that you know speech has really gotten super powerful because of the internet. Um, one of kind of my fundamental beliefs that I developed at J.P. Morgan was that really what was missing um, was missing for a long time was the value layer. And if you can't, if there's no way to value ideas, if there's no way to value, if there's no way to like. You know, to exchange value in the same kind of medium that you're um, that you're work that you're working with in the digital realm, like spam is a huge problem. And you know, you can say spam explicitly in your email, or spam in terms of credit right sock pu puppets, or what have you. But this idea that like there's no there's no way to value content in a differentiated way means that you just get this huge spam problem. And yeah, it's great everyone has a voice. But you know, as, as my old drill instructor liked to say, everyone opinions are like assholes. Everyone has them. Most of them stink. Yeah, I think my asshole stinks. Probably. I mean, most of them do. So, <laughs> but yeah, that's like, 
you know, when Bitcoin provides that, that opportunity, um, got really excited about that. Now I did get sucked down the shitcoin rabbit hole for a while. Um, I spent some, uh, spent some quality time doing that. Uh, before we get into your shitcoin rabbit hole, could you move your phone to yeah. the other side? Cause it totally. creates disturbance why it's near the lines. you you can keep it on. You don't have to put it on airplane mode. It's not, we all get, we all get dragged into shitcoins. I did as well. Yeah. I'll we make this mistake. Um, how did you make it? Well, so I got, I mean, I was re- still really excited by the ideas in the shitcoin space. Um, the ideas of like, Hey, what does it mean to have a decentralized autonomous organization? Um, I also think that the signal to noise ratio, what I didn't realize is that for the 10, 15, 20, 50, hundred people that like really cared about doing that stuff the right way, it was just attracting scammers from everywhere. Um, and that, Ultimately, like what I cared about the most was working on the most secure chain that had like the most value to it and the most potential ability to withstand attacks and the most potential ability to change people's lives in the near term. Um, I think that we will get the cornucopia of ideas that came out of 2017. I think that we'll have all those in 15, 20 years, maybe even less. But I think that you have to have some real fundamental value in the core chain you know, in, in the beginning and before we get there, like that's what happened in 1999. Like every failed startup from 1999 is now a billion dollar company, but guess what? You didn't have the infrastructure. You didn't have the, you didn't have the stuff that you need for those to succeed when they all pumped to the moon and then crashed to zero and everyone lost all their money. Yeah. And most of them died off and you had the Amazons, uh, the Googles, uh, the other survivors of the dot-com bubble of the world who, who made it. And what I've been saying more recently, what I'm interested to hear uh, your thoughts on is I think we're going to get everything like DAOs, like decentralized autonomous organizations. We'll get them at some point in the future. I don't think anytime soon Um, on top of that, like I think uh, smart contracts and DeFi will be built on layers on top of Bitcoin. But I do believe earnestly and becoming more uh, sort of confident in this view more recently is that there's an order of operations to all this, right? Like you can only have all those, those things, those functionalities, if the base layer is secure and sufficiently distributed and decentralized. And then only from there can you uh, build the apps, which need to leverage the assurances that the assurances that are, uh, embedded at the protocol level. Right? Yeah, exactly. You need security and then you need, and then you need liquidity and then you can get applications. Like I think that that's just the very basic stack. There might be a couple different layers. There's different approaches to all those things. If someone has a better solution than proof of work, which outlaws Bitcoin. Great. I don't think it's going to happen because you also have to tackle the social consensus and a lot of the other issues inherent in this stuff. But you know, security is what I care about the most. It's the most pressing issue. I think it's going to be the most pressing, pressing issue for a while. And that's why what I like to work on is UX for security. Right. And it won't, and then it's not even as easy to say it's like security and then, excuse me, security. And what was the second thing? Liquidity, liquidity, security and liquidity. Like with security comes multiple things. Like you're working on multi-sig security, like literally securing uh, the UTXOs, that represent the Bitcoin that you own. Uh, but from there, like, you have to think about network security, securing yourself against ISP attacks, securing yourself against uh, node centralization. So uh, ensuring that uh, the uh, 
the state, the chain state is at such a size that it could be run on hardware that people can download it on and, and participate and validate their transactions, their incoming transactions, most importantly. Um, so it's like checking off those boxes. And this is something, again, I'm just rambling here and thinking out loud about something I've been thinking in my head uh, by myself for like the last couple of weeks. Like, do you have to check all those boxes? And when can you say that those boxes are checked? And then from there, is it only then that you can have uh, all the applications that we're speaking of? Well, I think that the core point is that we can't compromise on the security questions. Um, I think that the that's really the biggest thing. And that was like one of the big aha moments for Bitcoin for me was the uh, the UASF and the you know the heroes and the leaders that like made that happen and said no fuck you we're doing it this way. There are no leaders. Exactly. I know there's no leaders. There's nobody with influential voices or making hats or podcasts, but that's the beautiful, uh, that's the beautiful thing is that everyone can play a role. Um, but yeah, like when I saw that happen, I was like, wow, Bitcoin's immune system is no joke. Um, and what you're protecting when you protect that is you're protecting the ability of that guy who can manages to get a raspberry pi 4 and a internet connection in iran who wants to run bitcoin pay server and take it like you are protecting his ability to be a fully self-sovereign bitcoin bitcoiner and not have to find out how to like invest in a ton of hardware and like that person can run a node that person can be their own their own like you know self-sovereign bitcoin node on the network and with the same rights and the same obligations that everyone else has and like protecting that protecting that guy is why you need to make is why we make the technical trade-offs that we do is why you don't scale on chain is why you do a lot of these things and there's there's some hard questions in there that i'm really happy that you know sharp people are are working on but like if that's kind of the ultimate objective here is like the most accepted currency is going to be the one that requires the least amount of capital overhead to operate i think that that's that's the approach that you want to make because that's what's going to make the thing the most saleable to the most number of people around the world. I think that was beautifully put. Um, right. And the barrier to entry has to be as low as possible. And it's, so do you think that has been getting better or worse throughout time? I think it's been, it's hard to say. I think it's been getting better in terms of the tooling and the technology that is avail that is available. Um, like you know, like I said, Casa, we focus a lot on UX. UX is what I care about. Usable multisig, it is what allows you to, you know, be a not just be a fully sovereign Bitcoin Bitcoiner, but be one in perpetuity because. No one wants to do Glacier Protocol, and no one, especially, wants to teach their wife and their kids to do Glacier Glacier Protocol. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of other, you know, there's a lot of other other solutions out there. I think that ours is ours is great, and I think that ours is great because we put the user first, um, and we put user experience kind of at this at the center of that. Because ultimately, that's what's going to drive adoption. That's what's going to drive to ch people to choose to choose you know, these better self-sovereign alternatives versus, oh, I'm just going to throw it in Coinbase. Oh, I'm just going to throw it in Zappo. Oh, I'm just going to throw it in this, in this custodial thing. And I have an IOU that is good for Bitcoin until, you know, until someone decides that it's not. Yeah. No, and it's important to get away from that. And that's from those tendencies of holding yeah. it on a custodian. And that's, it's a big fear for people taking, uh, taking control of their own wealth. It comes with extreme responsibility. 
Yeah. So this is, this is another thing that I just, I really think that like Bitcoin is not just about, I mean, you know, everyone, yeah, go shelter your relatives, pump, pump the moon Lambos, whatever. I do think that Bitcoin is going to appreciate massively in value, but Lambos are cheesy. (laughs) What? Lambos are cheesy. Lambo. I agree. Um, but at the same time, like it's a responsibility, like Bitcoin's a responsibility. It is a responsibility to hold your own wealth. It is like, you know, it's like owning a gun. It's like, this is a technical tool that can be critical to your safety, your family's welfare and safety. And like, if you learn how to use it, you have that. It is, that is a tool you have in your back pocket to protect you against nearly all comers. Um, you know, the state could kill, could still get you, but if you and your friends and your family and your town are also all holding, they're not going to get it. They can, you know, they're powerful enough to take Bitcoin from a couple people, not from a large number of people who stand up and say no, and no state is that powerful. Um, at the same time, it's real easy to fuck yourself and it is real easy to lose your money. It is real easy to lose your keys and just be one of those horror stories on Reddit of, you know, digging through the dumpster to find that, uh, whatever it is, that $600 million laptop that's just gone forever. So, you know, having that approach of like, this is a incredible tool and gives you incredible power, but also comes with a lot of responsibility. I think that's the, uh, that's the way to think about it. Like I sometimes think about like my, my role at Casa, I'm basically training people how to use the product and training people how to use, you know, associated, you know, associated just like general, general Bitcoin products that are out there. And I think of myself a little bit as like, you know, back in my drill instructor days when, uh, you know, when I was teaching people to, uh, to, to use a weapon and it's like, okay, this is, this is my, uh, you know, this, this is my treasure. There are many like it, but this one is, is my own. You know, this is the, uh, the, you know, the Mark, the Mark one mod, mod two model T is a f- fantastic piece of equipment for securing, for securing your assets, but combine it in a standard issue cost of three, five multi-sig. And you have like a real tool for, uh, for protecting your wealth. You have to understand how to use it cause you can fuck yourself. But if you understand how to use it and we try to make it as easy as possible, um, then you really, you know, you have this power and you're, you know, and you can take it with you wherever you go. And that includes, you know, escaping from bad regimes that want to do evil things to you and your family. If it comes down to it, like I love all my, all my American clients. Um, the people that I get me out of bed every day are the people that are, you know, live in places or might live in, in places where that's a real threat threat for them. Um, you know, and there's, I honestly don't know where a lot of my clients live because you can use the service anonymously. Uh, but I definitely know that there's at least a few people who, you know, who are thinking those thoughts when they, uh, when they, when they sign up for our service. What, what is their number one concern? Just they want, um, I think their number one concern is that Casa isn't going to fuck them. Um, and that's a big concern for everyone as it should be, as if you're thinking about that, like you're the right kind of clients. And there's a lot of ways in which we have our system designed, um, so that you, you know, they're th- like, we cannot screw you over. Um, that also means that if you fuck yourself, we can't help you. Um, sovereign recovery is a big one that, uh, that we go through and all our clients talk about what that means is that we give you the instructions for how to build your exact same multi-sig account that operates the exact same way. Um, but using open source tools, you know, Casa is a pretty purple interface, uh, with a lot of thought into the security model and the user experience and the design. Um, but under the hood, it is a standard issue P2 WSH Bitcoin, 
multi-state contract that you can build in Electrum with a little bit of a, you know, a little, little bit of, a little bit of elbow grease on the open source side. Yeah. So let's get back to like the power that this gives the individual, right? Like in your piece, Bitcoin is a weapon. You talked about asymmetric money. Cypherpunks have been building tools for individual liberty, freedom to communicate and the right to privacy for decades, but the rest of the world moved faster. Netscape, Oracle, all these centralized companies have one out up to this point. How does Bitcoin help us protect against these companies like the AK-47 uh, helped these uh, guerrilla warfare like militias fight bigger armies? So that's, that's a great question. Um, the fundamental thing is just it's, all, it's about providing the incentive for cryptography. It's about providing the incentive to like make asymmetric cryptography actually user-friendly. Um, we all know that not your keys, not your coins. If they are your keys, they're your coins. But guess what? That's, that's the incentive for us to solve this problem, to make private keys actually like usable by, by the end user, by, by the individual person. Um, but if we solve that, like you got those private keys laying around, you're not moving your Bitcoin all, all that much. Um, what else can we secure with those private keys? If we solve private key management, if private key management is basically like you can assume that as a solved problem, the way that developers can assume that mobile applications is a solved problem that like you will have a phone that is connected to the internet with you anywhere you go. There's an incredible amount that we can do to kind of re-architect the infrastructure of the internet. Um, right now you have these thin clients, your phones, they're basically calling back to servers everywhere all the time. Google servers, Amazon servers, Facebook servers, doesn't matter. Like you're talking to, you know, you're t through your app, you're talking to these giant servers everywhere. Um, and there's just like no way to do privacy effectively with that kind of architecture. However, if we're able to do private key management ourselves and what we can start doing is we can start storing data back in the home, home computing. You know, it's not about the internet of things, which is really just the internet of shit of, <laughs> you know, c devices calling back to Amazon. A great Twitter account to follow, by the way, the internet of shit. Look yeah. I I'm, I'm a fan. Um, but yeah, the, uh, you know, if actually you're calling back to a server that you run at home that is secured with your encryption keys, that is your critical data, your critical financial data, your critical health data, your critical, you know, family, family data, whatever else it is that's like critical to your life. If you're securing that data with the same keys or the same key setup that you're using to secure your Bitcoin, um, that means that we can turn on its head the architecture of the internet and really give the power of data back to the end users and the generators of the data, the people. How much have you looked into Urbit? That is on my perpetual crap. I need to sit down and figure out Urbit list. I have not looked into it. I am, I'm a bad Bitcoiner because I don't know enough about Urbit. It's like, I know it's out there. I'm like, I'm like keeping my eye on it. I'm like, at some point I'm going to have time to like go and just do the Urban rabbit hole. Well, it's very contentious amongst big Bitcoiners. Oh, really? A lot of Bitcoiners who love it a lot and a lot who uh, think it's uh, a scam. Well, I don't, I don't have enough information to have an opinion one way or the other. Yeah. I'm still trying to decide. I, uh, I, I like, so what you just described, like that idea of uh, self-compute and holding yep. your own data. I think that's the, from what I understand, again, that's the biggest problem with Urban is it's uh, very hard to understand, very esoteric in a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of places. But from what I understand, that's the problem they're trying to solve. Yeah. Well, my um, understanding is that you have to like, you have to like understand Urbit to get access to the forums where people 
can explain Urbit. So it's kind of a little bit of a chicken and the egg problem there, but I don't know. Yeah. You have to be able to hoon. <laughs> you have to be able to hoon their, 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 lang- their um, programming language. Yeah. Um, no, nah, and, and, and I'm not chilling anything here. I'm genuinely curious if you knew anything about it because, again, the uh, thing you just described, self-compute and uh, storing your own data, it's very appealing to me. Like, But the UX around that, like how obviously it seems that UX around Bitcoin is getting better, but like the UX of holding your own data and actually having that extreme responsibility, do you think we're going to have to have like a cultural shift? I think, a, I think a little bit, but I think it's already happening. Um, I do think that we're, we're getting there. Like, you know, the things that I, I if I, I don't understand Urbit yet, I do, you know, things I understand, like the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. Like, it says that thou must have a warrant. That's not exactly what the words say, but like, you know, search, illegal search and seizure. The cops can't do that. The government can't do that. If you're holding the data, they need to come with a warrant that says I can access this stuff. Um, one thing that was really a ma- major, major problem with the Fourth Amendment for a long time was this thing called third-party doctrine. And third-party doctrine came out of the 1960s and 70s, and it's this legal idea, it came out of some, some uh, Supreme Court cases, that said, if you're turning your data over to a third party, um, you're giving up your Fourth Amendment protections, and the government can do whatever it wants. So... The idea being like, if you give up your financial information to a bank, if you give up your communications information to the telephone company, you have sacrificed your Fourth Amendment protections under the law. Um, that, fortunately, has started to be pushed back on by the uh, by the court in the most recent ruling. I believe it was Carpenter that basically said... It's such that, a chicken shit law. What's that? It's such a chicken shit law. Yeah, it's completely Like all shit. these utilities that you're going to have to leverage. Like. Exactly. And like the way that obviously the internet has grown, the financial system has, has grown like as massively, you know, as third party doctrine has been expanded. Um, it's just totally undercut all the, the fourth amendment in practice entirely because our lives are digital. And what we need is we need a return to this idea that like, no, just because you're turning this stuff over to a cloud provider doesn't mean that you are sacrificing your rights to it. Um, I think that if we have a basic standard of like, everything should be encrypted. Um, that is, that is an action that people can take that's showing like, no, I do not want the third party to access this. And I do not give my consent to the government to search this without a warrant. Um, and if we start, you know, if there's services that start doing that, I think that's going to push back in the right direction. Um, the court did just have another case that started to kind of cut away at third party doctrine. Uh, the carpenter decision, um, was about, basically saying that the cops need to get a warrant to get your location data using uh, cell phone towers. Third party doctrine said like, oh, well, you know, you're paying for a data service and these cell phone towers can triangulate you. So because third party doctrine, the cops can just go and arrest you based on finding your location through cell phone tower tracking. And the court said no. But how, how effective is that though? Like, yes, they said no. But the, the Stingray devices still exist. Uh, all those very invasive metadata collecting uh, surveillance techniques still exist. Like, even if you do have the precedent, like the Carpenter case, like you just explained, like even if that does uh, go through court and work in our benefit per se, like, should we just be 
working to make it so it's impossible to even do that in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, we should be working on tools that empower individual liberty, no matter what. At the same time, I also think that it's important to fight these fights through the political process and through the legal process. And it's much better, you know, we're... We're privileged to live in a country where that's an option. I want those tools to exist to fight the... But is know, it getting more arduous and, and decaying in quality, the, the process throughout time? Um, you know... The further I, we get away from the, uh, the signing of the Declaration of Independence? See, but that's... I, I'm optimistic. And I am optimistic that technology and that ideas like Bitcoin are going to ch- turn the tide and are going to help be a part of this tide turning. I am um, too. And that's why I focus on Bitcoin is yeah. I, I don't think so. The point I'm trying to get at here is I am a jaded yeah. individual who does not think that working through the traditional political system is effective. And I focus my time and energy on Bitcoin because I think uh, that is a higher leverage activity to actually getting change that I want to see in the world uh, happen or making the change that I want to see in the world come to fruition. Right. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I don't think you need to be jaded about it. I'm incredibly optimistic about it. Like, I think that Bitcoin is showing people that there's a better future. It's like, it's like, look, if we can yeah. stop this, if we can like stop some of this, this madness, we can create a much better, much freer, much more open and optimistic world. And for me, like as an American, I would say like, I want to, you know, I want to make the case that this is better for our values. If you're in a country that doesn't support those values, I want you to have the tools to fight that country. But I don't think that America is that country. And I, I push back on people that say like, "Oh, we're we're too far gone." It's like, no, we can we can change here. Like, it's stuff still works. Oh, I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, so I think that's like, that's kind of where I where I come down on that. But yeah, well, if we if you're in a totalitarian state, you need the tools, and Bitcoin's one of those tools. Yeah. No. And it and. Bitcoin again. It's one of those tools. It's not a panacea. That's what we're we're coming to find. But again, it is another uh, arrow in the quiver. And and the last conversation I had on this podcast with was was with uh, Matt uh, Alborg, who's been doing the incredible research on P two P exchange data, talking about how uh, individuals in Nigeria are using it just as one payment rail in a very elaborate scheme to basically just move money. From yeah. the U.S. to Nigeria, that's incredible. That is so. That is so cool. Yeah, but it, it again, it's people, and that's what I'm trying to get here at because I've been having a couple conversations around this uh, the last couple of days as well. Is that people want Bitcoin to be everything out of the box right away, and they don't appreciate the process and the fact that it's not going to be uh, completely scalable out of the box. It's not going to be completely private out of the box. Whether you you like it or not. It's just the, the cards we've been dealt. And I yeah. believe it is getting more private over time and privacy uh, assurances are certainly not uh, up to snuff right now, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but they are getting better. I was, I was definitely appreciate the argument. I'm not sure that on-chain privacy is a desirable goal. I want private, the ability for private transactions. Um, but I guess I worry about the, I was just saying, just be closer to the mic. Oh, yeah. I guess, like, what I worry about is I worry about, adjust a little bit. Like, you have this problem. Like, what killed gold again and again and again was this issue where people were saying, oh, yeah, don't worry, it's backed by gold, but there's no way to verify that. You know, the on-chain, you know, the lack of, um, you know, the lack of on-chain privacy is also the ability, our ability to, like, actually make sure there's only 21 million of these things. That is, like, our ability to audit 
yeah. UTXOs and make sure that this really is sound money. So while I want privacy and I want people to have that option, uh, at the same time, I'm, I'm hesitant about the some of the proposed, you know, if there's a proposed solution that would like eliminate the ability of us to verify the, you know, the integrity of the UTXO set, I do kind of worry about that a bit. No, I wholeheartedly agree. And I, uh, I do think there is a happy medium, right? Like there is a, so the point at which you just have to make the, the, the cost of surveillance uh, too expensive, right? And I don't think you need complete confidential transactions, the actual technical spec at the protocol level, which would enable us, or excuse me, give us the inability to audit the supply. I don't think we need to go that far to get the sufficient privacy needed um, to also be able to audit the supply, right? Yeah. Like you, we can do something like if Schnorr and Taproot get instituted and things like Snicker or PDEP get better and um, you get creative with side chains like Liquid and uh, uh, second layers like Lightning Network to do uh, very elaborate coin join uh, setups, like uh, you can make it so the cost for the chain analysis of the world to actually try to uh, expend the resources to try to follow you around the blockchain is such that it's just not worth it. And you could, at the end of the day, uh, track transactions, but the cost is such that it's not worth it. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's a, that's a good approach and a good way to think about it. Because if what you want is you want the ability to go after bad people and, you know, and what you don't want is you don't want the ability to have a dragnet that can catch everybody. Like if someone is breaking the law to the extent that they are, you know, already the target of a state level of a state level investigation, like you want chain analysis or potentially more powerful tools that are entirely government funded to be able to go after those people and find them and identify them. Um, what you don't want is you you don't want that to be scalable to the point that they can just do what they do now, which is dump all the data all the data in a data center and just peruse it for any potential infraction of any of any magnitude. Like that's how you get the financial panopticon. But this actually gets to, you know, I think a uh, the North Korea question, which I think is one of the hardest questions in Bic in Bitcoin. You got strong thoughts on uh, some people visiting North Korea recently. Yeah, I mean the Kim regime is one of the most evil places one of the most evil in the world i mean they keep their entire population of north korea basically enslaved for the benefit of a few elites forget the nuclear weapons that they have they have enough artillery pointed at seoul to level that city and kill millions and millions of people within the span of about 30 minutes and that's not talking about nuclear weapons that's just old school artillery in hardened mountain positions that are dialed in to residential neighborhoods to basically commit mass slaughter should anyone try to take them out. Um, this, is the, this is the regime we're talking about here. Um, and if you are going to North Korea, that means you have the permission of the regime. I, you know, I am known through some breaches of the, uh, US, you know, the US personnel system. I am known as, a, as someone with a military background who had a clearance at one point. And I'm sure that if I were to show up in North Korea, I'd be arrested as a spy on day one. And the question you have to ask if they're letting you in North Korea is who you're supporting there and who's letting you in. So that's just, you know, if those guys are gonna, those guys are gonna figure it out, how to use this stuff to evade sanctions, um, let them do that themselves. Let's not help them if we believe in the values of this ecosystem. Um, that said, I do think that there's a, uh, I do think that there's a kind of beautiful solution to this 
which is, you know, this is a free tip for the CIA. If you're out there, uh, if you're out there listening to the, uh, to the bent, they're actually huge fans. <laughs> um, you know, in a, in a world where the U S is embracing Bitcoin, yes, that does mean empowering individuals. And that does mean in some circumstances, empowering individuals who wield a lot of dictatorial power, whether they're in Venezuela or North Korea right now. Um, but it's hard to secure your keys. It is hard to secure them if you're a nobody pleb within, you know, with a whatever avatar on Twitter. It is really hard if you are a known, you know, a known like international most, you know, international most wanted and you're known to be holding a lot of Bitcoin. Um, if I were the CIA, I would offer a bounty for those coins. I would say, you know what, you turn those private key material over to us. We don't, we're not going to ask questions about who you are. We're not going to ask questions about where you got them. You're going to get a one-way ticket. Uh, SEAL Team 6 is going to come pick you up, take you on a nice, nice submarine, submarine ride back to America. We'll give you a new face. We'll give you some clean coins so that they can't, so they can't track you. And you know, let the internal politics of a totalitarian regime, you know, how well do you think Mr. Kim is going to sleep at night knowing that every single person around him is incentivized with a hell of a lot of Bitcoin and freedom in America to get his coin away from him. Quasi assassination markets. I mean, yeah, but for or for murderous dic- for murderous dic- dictators, oh. and when the result is a bloodless coup. Like. Oh, I'm not against. <laughs> it. I, I, I like I, I like that idea. And so this is this your idea to solve the the nuclear crisis that I was alluding to before we hit record. <laughs> I don't know if this is going to solve the, the nuclear crisis. What I think this would do is this would disincentivize authoritarians to hold, you know, to like steal Bitcoin from their people because there's always going to be that risk that one of your trusted lieutenants is going to is going to turn and murder murder you and steal your coin and and run, and run off and leave you empty-handed. So that's my that's my solution to the the dictators with Bitcoin problem. Yeah, no, the incentives are strong. And what I was allu- alluding to there, alluding to is my favorite uh, favorite quote of the week right now, um, was the piece by Elaine uh, Eleno that she wrote this morning. You haven't read it yet, but uh, it basically described, all right, you want to bring peace to North Korea? Uh, you want to, particularly with their uh, nuclear warhead situation, and you want to de-escalate the, the nuclear uh, presence of North Korea, what you do is you force them to mine Bitcoin with that, that nuclear energy. They can, they can uh, reduce that down to uranium that can be made into nuclear reactors that can provably add a hash rate to the Bitcoin blockchain um, that you can prove that they're denuclearizing um, by mining Bitcoin. Uh, and they're definitely not making warheads because that uranium is being used for other purposes. I thought that was very creative. Yeah, that's a cool idea. I kind of like. I kind of like that. Um, I think that you'd have to figure it out because the issue is that like the kind of nuclear, the kind of nuclear reactor that you, the kind of nuclear reactor that runs on like normal nuclear fuel versus the ones that would you would need to run on. Um, on like the highly enriched uranium that go into nuclear weapons are a very different kind of setup. So you need to make sure that they are really using the highly enriched version and not like faking it with like 1% of their stockpile on the, on the other version. That'd be my, my one immediate, immediate technical objection to that. Um, but yeah, it sounds kind of interesting. I mean, the, uh, just, the issue there is I don't think that North Korea has any incentive to come to the to come to the table for no. nuclear de-escalation in the first place. Yeah, so. no, and I think Elaine may have been a bit facetious and that was, I don't want to say it was facetious, but it is uh, a, rep- or, uh, a um, p- 
putting forward of opportunity costs. Like, hey, you can either build these nuclear wars that if you shoot one off, there's a good chance the way that nuclear game theory uh, work at, works out and that if you shoot one off, we're going to shoot one off and they're going to shoot one off and we're going to end the world. So you can either uh, use that uranium to build these nukes that just add to uh, the risk of us blowing up this planet or you could use that to turn it into sound digital money that you can hold. We may not like you, um, but if you're using that nuclear energy to mine a sound currency instead of blow up the world, right, we'll take the net positive there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the the best approach to any of our foreign policy problems, like you want to lean in to what we do well in America. Like we do freedom well. We do, yeah, we do freedom well in this country. We do, you know, we do innovation innovation well. And so, any approach to a problem that's you know that takes those into account that kind of leads with those, I think is our is our strongest play. And this is, you don't even have to apply this to North Korea alone. Like so to Russia, China, us. Like if we were like, hey, we'll start. We'll use some of this. Sexual uranium. We have the most nuclear warheads on Earth. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a. Uh, I, th- I think it's a good idea. I think that really what you want, you know, my, my concern is that, you know, I think that the U.S. is. I think that we're losing some of our footing, some of our power in the world, and I think that like, our financial power is one of the ones that's been incredibly useful for us. Like we use our financial power to go after the Iranian nuclear program for great effect. Um, yeah, let me just mess with this thing for a second. Yeah, perfect right there. There we go. All right. So, yeah, using, you know, we use our financial power for great effect to slow down the Iranian nuclear program, and it worked. The problem is that they still want it, and that's due to some foreign policy decisions that, that, we, that we have made and just their own, their own national interests. The other problem is that now that we've kind of played that card, the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and a lot of people are trying to route around that, and they're going to be successful. If we try to rely on this financial tool, Push it forward a little bit. Away from me? Yeah. Like there? Perfect, perfect. Yeah, if we try to rely on if we try to rely on our financial power to continue to do this, we're going to ultimately kind of burn out that card and we're going to leave the US dollar in a much worse place. Yeah, it's happening quicker than I think a lot of people expect, too. Exactly. And that's why like if we were to lean into Bitcoin, I think that, that would be such a that would be a massively beneficial thing for our country, our national security, and our long term interests. I mean, Bitcoin is not going to work in a totalitarian country because people aren't going to trust it unless they can hold it themselves. If they know that like this is actually how it works, they're not gonna trust it unless they can hold it themselves. And if they can hold it themselves, then the government can't inflate it away and can't use, you know, whatever power they've achieved to like you know, fund to fund insane, you know, insane military projects, insane projects that are like counter to counter to individual freedom. Like if we lean, in, lean into this stuff, yes. Does it disrupt our po- financial power a little bit in the short run? A little bit. But at the same time, what we get is we get a world, a global financial system that is pegged by something that is born of the same values that the U.S. Constitution was, was based on that has incredible risks for anyone that wants to concentrate power power with it because someone can just, you know, slit your throat in the middle of the night and steal your private keys. And ultimately is going to be the thing that like increases liberty for everyone around the world. So what does a, a U.S. government lean in look like? Like how do we ensure that they don't fuck this up? <sighs> That's a great question. Um, I think that what I actually think the best approach for this would be, and I'm kind of coming to this right now, is... You start small. Bitcoin is a decentralized system. You want to start with the smallest unit possible. And what I would say is, 
If you are a state treasury, you should invest in a little Bitcoin. If you are a pension fund that has state employees, you should invest in a little Bitcoin. If you are, you know, you don't need the permission of the US Department of the Treasury to do this. You know, each state is sovereign. There's plenty of entities, there's plenty of government entities can, that can do this on their own and can start to look towards this future. Um, I think that a lot of them are scared because a lot of them see, you know, the see like the risks and the things that Treasury is con concerned about. But I think that if there's a shift and we see that like this is actually an American good, that this is valuable from the American perspective, I think that, you know, individual, that individual small groups, small pools of money can start to say like, hey, let's hold on to a little bit of this just in case because it is aligned with our values and it could be a, uh, a bulwark against risk that's coming down the line. I think that's the, the kind of first step that starts to normalize it, that starts to get people excited about excited about it. You know, if the Fed wants to go out tomorrow and, or the treasury wants to go out tomorrow and put some Bitcoin in cold storage for the benefit of the, you know, of the United States of America, fantastic. I don't think that's super realistic, but I do think it's realistic that, you know, and even American citizens, we get more American citizens who just say like, Hey, this stuff is valuable. I trust this. I believe in the long-term vi vision of this stuff. I think that that's how you build. That's how you build a groundswell. That's how you build a movement. And then, you know, when our next president, you know, when our next president like comes into office, they read a report where, you know, someone says, by the way, um, you know how America is like the number one, the gun capital of the world. And there's like, you know, per capita X number of guns for every single American. Well, Bitcoin's the same way now. Like Americans hold a ton of Bitcoin and it's not like it's all held at Coinbase. It's held in, you know, treasures, ledgers, steel, paper, paper wallets and safe deposit boxes, steel buried up on under the mountain. It is all over the place in America. It is penetrated into the society um, because its values align with ours. And at that point, the government's like, all right, well, we might as well, we might as well throw some in the treasury because why not? <laughs> right. We can only hope, right? Because you don't, that's my biggest worry is that the government fucks it up because what we're seeing now, a lot of headlines in, in recent weeks uh, of a lot of companies starting mining operations throughout North America, whether it be the United States or Canada, uh, a lot of hype around mining in America in the last few months. And it is observationally up to this point, uh, individual entrepreneurs uh, embarking on these uh, entrepreneurial endeavors and what my worry is, is that you have uh, uh, U.S. businesses sort of utilize Bitcoin and use Bitcoin uh, to their benefit. And it gets to a certain scale, particularly mining. Mining is what I'm worried about most. And the government tries to, to confiscate these, these operations and um, they use that as a choke point to hurt Bitcoin in the long run. They certainly could do that. I think it'll be in their interest. And this is, if Bitcoin's going to work, it has to be in everyone's interest and that includes the government. I think that, you know, I think that the government's going to decide, Hey, we should probably like maybe start mining a little bit ourselves. Um, you know, where are you, where are you going to get those, uh, those fresh Coinbase coins to, uh, to pay off your North Korean defector well, if well, not from your own, uh, the NSA, the NSA's own well, mining, then, mining farms. If they do come to that conclusion, like, will there be a, Hey, we get priority over this energy because we're the government and we should, we should mine first. Like, will they start an eminent domain for the cheap energy so that they can mine over, uh, American citizens. I don't think so because I th I think that you know, and I think that this is pretty common for Bitcoiners. I think that I think that 
in general, the government isn't as competent and nefarious as you might think. I think that they want to do things the right way. They probably want to see themselves as as the good guys. Like there certainly are some, you know, sociopathic um, Machiavellian types. But I don't think that there's anyone like thinking that deeply about like, oh yeah, let's like seize the means of production to like take over Bitcoin mining and like make it all state run. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I hope not to. I'm trying to adversarial think here. Sure. No, and that's, and that's great. But I think that I, my whole thing is like, I think that we convince them that this is in their interest. And I think that ultimately they're going to look at the reality, which is that this stuff does empower individuals, which is why it's like fundamentally positive for American values and positive for anyone who wants that in the world. And if you, you know, yeah, the government could say, oh, we want a ton of money and we want to like take, take this over. But it's honestly better if some of that power is shared. It's better if that power is distributed and decentralized and we still have, you know, enough semblance, enough, you know, pieces of our democracy and of our Republic functioning that I think that, I think that people will respond, people in government will respond to the incentives of like, Let's not do things that are going to piss off all, all our constituents. And seizing property is a good way to piss off all your constituents. I think that we're not in the, uh, you know, I think that you're kind of alluding towards like the gold thing that happened in the 30s. And I think that like this goes back to our talk about social media. Like the 30s also was a time when you had radio and it was new and there was no television. And it was like, and, you know, Roosevelt could go into people's living rooms every night and talk directly to them and spread his message. And he was the only show in town. And so, of course, he was able to do whatever the hell he wanted and get elected four times. Like, that's not the media environment that we operate in, in anymore. If the government starts doing stuff like that, it's going to be all over social media. But you can tell they wanted to sort of keep that power, right? And keep that, that type of relationship between uh, quote-unquote gatekeepers and the common man. Totally. But I also think that that's just this struggle that we're going through right now. Ultimately, technology is going to decide which side wins, right? Like the AK 47. Exactly. It didn't matter. And it was we, a better technology. And guess what? Technology is on our side. So yeah, I should probably wrap yeah. up. Yeah. You got a party to get to a holiday party. Sorry for keeping you. No problem. It's fun. And you have any parting notes you want to leave the freaks? Nope. Um, at Hector Rosecrans. I'm not super, uh, I'm not super covert on Twitter. So, uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, hit me up at, uh, Hector t- at team.casa if you're interested in, uh, in talking about our products. But, uh, but yeah, that's about it. Dude, I appreciate you swinging through. Totally. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank, you for, thank you for your service and uh, peace and love, freaks. Thanks for having me. Okay.